In the age of the coronavirus pandemic, we're in for potentially months of uncertainty. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Later in this show, we'll have a conversation with The Oregonian state politics reporter Hillary Baroud, where we talked about the takeaways from the failed legislative session earlier this month. But first, what does our future look like? With schools closed, social distancing on everyone's mind, and the nation in a state of emergency. Italy is already there, and has been for several weeks. Up next, a conversation with Melissa Grayboys and Alfredo Berlando, two University of Oregon professors who are living in what could be our future. The couple and their two small children left Eugene last summer and were living in Milan, where they were working on a research sabbatical. But a little more than three weeks ago, as coronavirus struck, they packed up what they needed and left. Now, they're living in Berlando's childhood apartment in Belluno, a village of roughly 39,000 north of Venice. Today, they find themselves in a nation on lockdown. We talked about how they're dealing with the quarantine, letting go of the little things, what Italy is like today, and what Americans need to know. Well, professors, Melissa Grayboys and Alfredo Berlanda, you're a captive audience right now, but I, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Since your letter, your your kind of call of of caution for a lot of this stuff, you know, we have seen considerable changes here in, in both the U.S. and in Oregon. Um, you know, the NBA is suspended. The NCAA tournament is not going to happen this year. All Oregon schools, as of... Um, this is, uh, we're recording this on a Friday morning, late Thursday night, they all canceled. What more should we be doing? Or um, are these the appropriate steps? The main step is practice more social distance. This is not a moment to be socializing, especially because there is so little data coming from Oregon's uh, institutions. You just don't know what's out there at this point. If you're unlucky, then you're in a trajectory like Italy has been in which the same step change that you are, you just saw in the last 48 hours, mm-hmm. we saw it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, and now we saw it a week ago with additional restrictions where they were cordoning off parts of the country. And then again, just two days ago, when they told everybody to be on quarantine at home, and you know the conversation in the news today is that they are trying to figure out even more stringent regulations for the population. So that's one potential trajectory. Hopefully it will not be that, but the more you can do in terms of limiting social contacts, cutting down on connections, on physical connections with people and locations, the better it is. And you're there together, obviously, and then you have have two children with you as well. How how have you been managing this? It's incredibly stressful, I'd imagine, to be overseas trying to navigate all of this. It has been somewhat stressful, but we have some inherent advantages. I'm Italian uh, and my family is here. And so what we have been able to do is really rely strongly on the family ties and the family networks. Obviously, the kids in Milano, they were enrolled in school. And so that has had to stop. Uh, We've been dealing with the schools indirectly via email communication and WhatsApp, uh, getting homework and somewhat loosely remaining connected with, uh, with with the school uh, and that probably is the biggest challenge is how to keep these kids motivated through weeks without school and what right. does it mean really for their learning. 
Alfredo is the Italian, so he's going to tell you the upside of being back in his hometown. <laughs> I'm the resident warrior, planner, and public health expert in the family. Exactly. And I will say that the last three weeks have been extremely stressful. The situation has been changing so rapidly. I mean, we look at the data, and both of us are comfortable looking at quantitative data mm-hmm. and figuring out what it means. And we're looking at epidemiological data multiple times a day, trying to figure out what's the rate of change, how many tests are being done, how many new cases are popping up, where are they, how full are hospitals, trying to make informed decisions about where should we be. And even with support networks in place, it's, it's really a confusing, stressful time to trying to figure out what you as an individual should do. A lot of Oregonians are feeling the same way, and we don't have that public health background. What advice would you give us for trying to figure out how to navigate this? I I hate to make this sound too doomsday-like, but plan for the worst and prepare for the worst and begin engaging in the safe behaviors that are likely to keep your family protected now. And even though those are inconvenient behaviors and they do have costs to them, Mm Uh, financial costs of having kids out of school or not being able to work as much as you can to absorb those. The early weeks of social distancing are really important, especially because Oregon is not keeping an accurate count of how many cases there are. And really no country other than South Korea is keeping an accurate count of how many asymptomatic cases there are. So if it's possible for families, for you and for others to work under the assumption that there are a lot of coronavirus cases in your community and that the best way to stay healthy and safe is to isolate as much as possible. If that's feasible, that would be my advice. And that's what I would be doing in Eugene right now. Alfredo, I'm just curious, you're in your apartment where you grew up. Do you have parents who are, um, you know, maybe in their 60s or 70s? And, and how are you navigating that situation given they're potentially more at risk just uh, given their age range? My, my family, my, my parents are still, you know, they're in the early 60s, and so they are, they are alive. We are concerned about them um, uh, as well, even though they're very healthy. I, I could not imagine them sick, but on the other hand, there's a lot of people that you don't imagine sick that end up being sick. And so we are trying to convince them, actually, to take some protective behaviors. One thing that I find very striking here in, in Italy is that there is obviously a lot of, it's, it's an old society, there's a lot of old people, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they tend to be less likely to take behaviors. Uh, <laughs> they are the ones that are walking through the supermarkets without wearing gloves. I, I asked my aunt if I could go shopping for her and so she could stay home, and her response is, well, if you're going to be outside, let's meet at a bar so we can have a drink together. And clearly that, that was not the intent that I had. So what have you let go of? Uh, you let go of all the plans that you made, uh, travel plans, um, research plans. We're in a beautiful place with lots of beautiful mountains with hikes and skiing, uh, but you cannot go there because obviously you have to be cooped up in the house uh, for the next few days. So you let go of, uh, of all of that. Overall, you just let go a little bit of, uh, of the busy life, regimented, scheduled life that you had for a while. And you know the hope is that in some small amount of time, we'll be able to, uh, to return to normalcy. But I have to say that how often I've been surprised by how long this has taken. So when Melissa said that we packed up and, and left, uh, I thought, okay, let's pack up for two days or three days. Right. Uh, but obviously my wife, uh, uh, more of a doomsday scenario type of person, <laughs> she packed up for, for the long haul, which is great because now we have everything we need. <laughs> 
good, good planning. Yes. Every relationship needs one planner. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And uh, my wife, who I'm sure will listen to this, uh, will know that that's not me. (laughs) I'm. I'm, uh, You understand me. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, maybe you can help me with uh, what should I be letting go of? Both my wife and I are from Medford. We're considering going down there for spring break. We had this planned forever. Our parents are all healthy in their, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Should we go? No. The answer in this situation is almost always no. Don't do it. When in doubt, now is the time to cancel plans that are anything other than critically urgent. And that can make people feel self-conscious, embarrassed, because you don't want to seem like you're too scared or overreacting. Yeah. But it's serious. And I think that one of the things that's not coming through in the American media, and we're reading a lot of not just New York Times, but organ mm-hmm. coverage and Eugene coverage, is the scope and the scale of the emergency. And, and I don't use that word lightly. It is a public health emergency. And doctors here are talking about it in the way that it's, it's a war scenario. Lives are being changed. Not just people are dying but everyone's daily routines are being changed in significant ways and citizens are being asked to make significant sacrifices. It's a big mental roadblock, I think, for a lot of people. And I, I can... I think know, for Americans, it's really hard to let go of travel. Uh, yeah. You know, the idea that you should not be on a plane for yeah. for a little bit, yeah. it's, it's troublesome. And for me as well, it was a really... I, I had lots of travel that I was planning to do and, and to let yeah. go of that is not easy. Uh, but in this situation, it's absolutely prudent to just uh, push everything back. And just when you do that, you also need to recognize or, re- or, or maybe it's helpful to know that everybody else is doing the same. Let's put all of us a break on our lives for a few weeks and then we'll resume. And then yeah. we will all months. go back a few months. A few months. <laughs> okay, there you go. A few months. We'll, we'll go so back. So there's to- some disagreement in the house here. You know, I I would say that Alfredo is actually a great model of how um, public health behavior change works, (laughs) that it takes a period of time for people to, A, come to terms with the gravity of the situation around them, and then understand how their own personal actions can either protect themselves or put themselves at risk. But in the case of a contagious infectious disease like this one, how their own behaviors can actually hurt the larger public. And by doing anything other than absolutely necessary travel, doing more socializing, going to public events, continuing to see friends, that actually puts a strain on the public health system two to three weeks from now that you you can't see and you can't feel, but is very real. So you mentioned earlier, Alfredo, that you were talking to your aunts and about grocery shopping. Um, Are you seeing your family at all or are you or is it just completely just the, the four of you um, in, in the apartment? We saw, so my sister lives nearby where, uh-huh. you know, a couple of blocks away. And we've seen them very extensively. We've been having lunch, dinners, uh, sleepovers with, uh, with, with our children. We have been talking to them extensively about their social network. Who are they seeing? Who uh-huh. are we seeing? What are the, what are all the, what's the, what's the network uh, of contact? And since we are in very strong contact with them, we really try to make sure that we're in agreement over who they were in touch with and who we were in touch with and deciding what are we comfortable with and what are we not comfortable with. 
you know, as another example, we have, we're, we live in an apartment complex. Mm-hmm. The door uh, right next to ours, there's two children, same age as our daughters, lots of contact as well. But, uh, you know, today, because we don't know their network as well, we came to the decision. We need to actually cut down on that social contact uh, with them yeah. as, to, to, a, to a large extent. And I, I would just say that in the United States, I mean, having social networks and supports is important in an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. And in, especially in a situation where many people may get sick with coronavirus and be asked to isolate at home for two weeks or more. And you want to have those support networks in place, people who can help bring you food, help who are willing to do those things that you need. So it may make sense to partner up with another family that is your neighbor and your friend. And I think the important conversations you need to have, like those we had with our our in-laws are, what are the ground rules about um, how much contact we're gonna have, what safety precautions we're gonna have, and how do we collectively as families agree to limit? For us, it was, we agreed when we arrived here two weeks ago, that children were not going to go out in public places anymore. They are too unreliable. They put their tongues on everything. They put yeah. their hands on everything. They touch their face. They're germ monsters. And they're also really amazing vectors of this disease. So they don't often show symptoms. But once a child has that disease, has coronavirus in the home, it's almost guaranteed that everyone in the nuclear family will get it. So for us, we decided kids are not going in public. We also minimized all adult contact in public. We tried to do grocery shopping together so only one adult would go out. We do have masks and gloves, and when I go out in public, I use those, not because they filter the virus, but because it stops me from touching my nose and my mouth, and it's a good reminder that surfaces that I touch are likely dirty. One more thing that I would add is that, you know, obviously the, the likelihood of a of one particular person of you being infected and infecting others is not particularly large. But I always think it's not just protecting your own. What if you are in touch with somebody and you transmit something to somebody who then not only gets sick, but will have to, per regulations, stay at home in isolation for weeks at a time. If they have family, if they have children, Mm -hmm. they're also going to get sick. Generally, it's not happening all at the same time. It's like Staggered you know, staggered a few, days. a few days, five days, six days, one, and then the other, and then the other, and then you know your your uh, the time that you have to take off from work, the time where you cannot make money, that you are uh, you are stuck uh, in a in a in a real emergency situation and isolation. It's going to be not just uh, two weeks; it's going to be potentially a month, a month and a half, or longer. Do you really want to bring that to another family? You you really want to be careful about about that. How are you entertaining yourselves? Writing doomsday letters Warning. to the state of Oregon. <laughs> um, I, I read too much news about what's going on in different places and think a lot about what's going on here locally because we kind of have one foot here in Italy and one foot in the United States. I'm always still thinking about a plan B if things got really bad here, not just for our family, but for our in-laws and for his parents, thinking about if we don't see in the next week cases decreasing or we see case fatality rates go up tremendously or if we see hospitals getting overwhelmed, is this really where we want to be? And are there additional steps we can take to try to make sure that we stay safe? Yeah, so she worries. She's that doesn't sound here. like entertainment to me, Melissa. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That, that was, I need some book recommendations or yeah. film recommendations. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I've got a three and a one-year-old and my days of reading for pleasure have uh, gone by the wayside. And my 
fun activities have, you know, I'm a big NBA fan. I watch the NBA that's gone. So it's yeah. like, what am I going to do? Get back into reading, right. I guess. I don't, but, yeah. but, but what do you, do you, do you, are you watching shows or are you uh, just kind of talking? We talk a lot to each other about uh, coronavirus. I keep telling her that I would love if we, the first words out of her mouth in the morning are not the same words out of her mouth at night and it's about coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> I personally would prefer to talk about the stock market, for instance. As an economist, uh, I find the economic effects of this to be fascinating for uh, not good reasons, I guess. No, there, there's enjoyment. So one of the lovely things, as Alfredo said, is the break from daily life. This is unlike anything we've experienced in our lifetime and that most people alive right now will not have experienced something like this unless they've been in a war scenario, really. So... Um, I've enjoyed, uh, we have a trampoline in the garden of the apartment complex. So I've been jumping on the trampoline, a little jumping and yelling therapy with kids every day. We've been out throwing the softball around in the sunshine and that's nice reading books with kids. So there, there's some nice breaks from the daily routine. And I think the challenge is that how do you forget what's looming over you and the fact of why do you have this odd pause in your daily life? And sorry, how old are, are the kids? Um, nine and five. Do they know what's going on? The nine-year-old really knows what's going on. But I, I mean, I'm a medical historian. So I teach about infectious diseases all the time. Right. And she sat in on lectures on how SIV became HIV and how plague took off. So <laughs> she knows a lot about coronavirus at this point. But our goal is not to make them scared, but to make them understand what's going on and know that a lot of people are working really hard to make other people safe and that she's in a safe space. I think it's important that she recognizes this. She's been sitting with us in the evenings when we turn on the TV to watch the, the Italian news and she follows along. And I, I do think that this is going to be for a nine-year-old the event that you will remember when you're 30, when you're 40. What is your first really... Uh, moment when you understood that there was a larger world, that there were large events taking place. And, you know, for me, that being the fall of the Berlin Wall, I remember that evening so so well. And I believe that for her, it's going to be the same. This particular coronavirus is going to be exactly the same. She's going to be remembering, uh, you know, the news from China, from Italy, from uh, from the rest of the world, from the U.S. And that, I think it's a, it's a great thing. And that's going to be a, a, a sort of a legacy of this event. What's the Italian media landscape like? Because, you know, here in the States, um, you know, not breaking any news here that there's been kind of, you know, there's the conservative media that until recently was acting like nothing was going on. Uh, You have the president contradicting his health experts. What's the situation like there in Italy? You know, I, I would say the biggest difference I see reading the Italian news every day and looking at the American news is the information is not nearly as politicized here. It's being presented as a national emergency. To me, I see a kind of unification of messaging around the science of the disease and about the steps that need to be taken to combat it that have been, in my opinion, quite on point and quickly advancing as they needed to as new information came in. And I don't see this tension between people essentially trying to play politics and make a gain or a clear gain or some sort of victory, personal victory out of this. I think Italians as a culture have tremendous, still tremendous respect, especially for the medical profession. And so these from the very beginning, there has been full on honesty 
about the situation from the point of view of the government and full-on leeway for experts to say what they want to say about the situation. And up until yeah. up until a few days ago, I have to say that I've been reading that the government has been trying to convince doctors to speak less yeah. to the media because they are worried that showing doctors that are in the front lines, that are telling things that are excruciating, painful stories that they see is not calming the spirits as much as they would like. The government also has been able to convince the press to be a little bit less uh, sensationalistic. Uh, there was a moment in the very beginning where, uh, you know, you would listen to the news and you would be like, okay, here in, here in Milan, the situation is desperate. Here in these other towns, the situation is desperate. And they really, um, there was a message that came out from the government that says, tone it down. And they did. And that's surprising. It, Italian media can be really feisty. <laughs> but in this moment, we're seeing a unification that is, uh, that is nice to see. It's really people are pulling together. We're rowing all in the same direction because we all are scared about what's going on. Where do things go from here? Do you have any sense of how long the isolation is going to continue? Well, it's a minimum of two weeks. So mm-hmm. we're only on day two. Um, and every initiative that's been taken so far has started with two weeks and has continued indefinitely. Yeah. Um, my own sense is that, you know, home isolation is probably is going to be extremely dependent on what happens with the rate of new infections. And if the mm-hmm. rate in, of new infections don't, doesn't go down, there's no way they're going to release this. And I think in this way, China is a bit of a model that China has contained their epidemic um, quite successfully. It took them about six or seven weeks to really reduce those cases, but their quarantine measures are still in place. And most epidemiologists who are modeling (laughs) think that it's going to take weeks, if not perhaps even months after cases are significantly down until normal life movement, et cetera, can continue without causing a surge in new cases. So in my mind, this isn't a matter of days and weeks. This is months. But, you know, it's so hard because this is a brand new disease. So all the data is being collected in real time, but it's incomplete data. It's being processed and analyzed, and we're creating models off of that that are models that we then import into a different geographic setting, different political setting, different cultural setting, and we hope that it behaves the same way so our models are fairly accurate. But actually, I would say that South Korea can't be a model for Italy because they have not passed a single law restricting movement, but everyone has essentially sheltered in place for weeks and they did widespread testing. Italy hasn't done that. Um, So really the only model we have to go off of is China here. And actually in the last few days, China's new cases were actually imported from other countries. So as this moves around the globe, one of the questions that's going to come up is even as a country releases their own restrictions, if they tamp down local transmission, if infections are still raging across the border or two or three countries over, as people move, reinfection will happen. And we don't yet understand immunity. We don't have a test to figure out if I had coronavirus three weeks ago mildly. I have no way to know if I'm immune, if I've had it, and if I should shelter in place again or if I can go about my normal business. Sometimes I'm not sure people fully appreciate how hard the scientists are working and how many actual basic questions we still don't know about this that make planning about the future really, really challenging. Uh, it's Friday. What's your, what's your Friday night look like? <laughs> We're cooking. We're cooking a meal and probably we'll watch a movie later with the kids. What are you cooking? 
today was a good cooking day. We, um, I found a big ceramic Dutch oven here and in the apartment. So we made a big loaf of no need um, bread that was rising overnight. So we've got fresh bread. We're making vitello, which is um, a veal stew and uh, Brussels sprouts to go along with it. Are you wine drinkers at all? We'll have a glass of Prosecco after this interview. I already had some. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, thank you so much for um, talking about your experience. I think a a lot of people are scared, but maybe there's some practical advice that they'll glean from this. And I hope you stay safe. We'll see what happens from here. Thank you. Let's hope. Yes. I just want to say, you know, I hope people, more than being scared, be prepared. Do what you can right now to think about your own health and your own safety, but also the health and the safety of those around you in your community. And that there really are easy steps that you can start taking right now. Like what, I guess, instead of wiping out the Tiger Costco of uh, toilet paper and, you know. Yeah, that, that that's, that's not it. Not that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. The social distancing. I think as much as people can to keep their kids at home, as much as they can to reduce contact with everyone except for nuclear family members and close family members that you would see yourself writing out this emergency with, your mutual support network, really whittling that down. Don't go to the movies. Don't go to the theater. Don't make superfluous trips to the supermarket. Don't have coffee with friends right now. Work from home. Cancel meetings. Call in when you shouldn't be there in person. Those are the really easiest easiest steps that should be done right now that will make a really big difference 10 to 14 days from now. Wash your hands. And wash your hands constantly. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a break, then touch base with the Oregonian state politics reporter, Hillary Baroud. Hillary, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, remind folks, we've been kind of living in this coronavirus haze for a while now. Um, how'd the legislative session go down in Salem? Yeah, it. Uh, I think it's pretty universal that it, people feel that it was a failure at this point. There's different viewpoints on whose fault that is, that it was a failure, um, depending on who you talk to. But they wrapped up with basically three bills having been passed. They were very minor bills, the kind of things that pass every session, but you never hear anything about. One had to do with cultural trust license plate fees getting increased, to give an example. Big issues. Yeah. yeah and, and the reason that that happened was because Republicans walked out uh, just about two weeks before the session had to end under a constitutional deadline. They wanted to block this uh, climate change cap and trade bill that was going to place a limit on greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And they were successful in doing that. Uh, but they also stopped dozens of other bills that were still alive at that point. Yeah, we talked about uh, the uh, climate change bill, the cap and trade proposal on a previous podcast. But Um, remind us beyond that, what else was left unfinished, I guess, down in Salem, um, that they weren't able to get done because Republicans weren't there. 
Some of the biggest things that they were looking at this session, and it's a short session. It was supposed to be up to 35 days. The biggest mm-hmm. things were really budget items, although there were other significant policy proposals. They had as much as almost $500 million just due to our economy having done well. And, and geez, that's already looking like kind of <laughs> it feels in the like rearview mirror. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but the state was predicting, as economists were expecting, that we were going to get quite a windfall of tax revenue. And so there's still a lot of needs, even in um, good financial times for the state, for child welfare, improving foster care. You know, it's been in in the news so much that the state has challenges with that. Yeah, you've Um, reported on that issue quite a bit over the last few years. Yeah, a lot of really sad um, stories that we've reported related to child welfare. So the state's still trying to improve that program. They wanted to increase capacity at the state psychiatric hospital. There, There is uh, basically, according to the House Speaker, and probably a lot of people would agree, a statewide homelessness crisis. So they wanted to put a lot of money towards that. There were other things, affordable housing, um, just a lot of needs that they were hoping to put this money towards. And as a result of the, the shutdown, they were not able to do that. What's the mood Um in talking to both leaders and you know rank rank and file members i just feel like everyone is regrouping at this point they're trying to figure out how they're going to move forward a lot of liberal groups that are allied with democrats are really going to try and use this against republicans and hoping that they could um, even grow the democrats power i don't know if you could get up to that two-thirds quorum requirement to get around the republican walkout strategy how close are they to that oh boy they're um they have more than a three-fifths supermajority in each chamber right now, and so they're so they're basically two lawmakers short in each chamber because they needed two uh, Republicans to stick around in okay. order to avoid these shutdowns, and they were only able to get one Republican in each chamber. But basically regrouping on both sides, the Republicans, for their part, they have lost ground in the legislature in recent elections. Not that long after Tuesday's filing deadline, Tuesday was a deadline to, to file for um, state office in Oregon. And the House Republicans, they were encouraging people to contribute to their election pack, citing the walkout as, look, here, here's what we did. We killed this bill. And that's why you should support us this year. So they're not... Um changing tactics uh, from what you can tell just in the in the few days since the end of the session. No, um, quite the contrary. I'd say that that email, that fundraising email, uh, points to the, the political advantage that they see in having walked out and taken that stand. And especially in the House, because the bill that they were trying to stop was over in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And it was completely unclear how long it would have taken that bill to get over to the House and come up for a vote in the House, even if the Senate Republicans hadn't walked out. So when the House decided that they were going to march out or quietly go out the back door or whatever um, the day after Senate Republicans did, it was more of um, taking a stand or a protest position against this bill versus actually logistically stopping it. Why does this keep happening? So it's happened now that it's happened a handful of times in, I think it was 11 months. It seems to be flowing from the balance of power that we have in the state right now, which is Democrats control the legislature with supermajorities where they can pass taxes, which was the the trigger supposedly for the first walkout last year, this Mm -hmm. big uh, business tax to raise money for public education in Oregon. 
ended up passing, of course, after Senate Republicans came back in exchange for the governor killing two unrelated bills. But that balance of power where Democrats are able to push through more of their priorities as part of it, I think that the Republicans are looking for ways to remain relevant in Oregon politics. Now, they do, in kind of a one-off, they were able to win the Secretary of State's office back in 2016. And the late Dennis Richardson, yeah, right, who, uh, that the was, central point lawmaker who was able to win that statewide office. I think that took some Democrats by surprise that year. And certainly that's an office that's up for election this year and they're really focused on. But aside from that, uh, Republicans have been, they're seeing all these Democratic priorities pushed through. And, and of course, the governor's a Democrat. And they're just trying to... Um, find some way that they can still affect outcomes because once you are once you aren't able to control things as much some of the some of the interests that were even traditional supporters of the Republican Party like business they start recognizing okay we have to deal with the democrats we're going to go over to the democrats and we're going to cut a deal on say last year it was paid family and medical leave mm-hmm. And all of that just keeps taking away from um the power for, for the republicans so what do you think is the legacy of, of this walkout? The reaction from Democratic leaders normally, um, as you wrote, the normally very composed and stayed uh, Speaker Kotek was pretty upset. I mean, what do you think the legacy is of this this one? She was. And I think it was um, she was unusually emotional or kind of raw in that speech on the House floor the day that she and then later uh, Senate President Peter Courtney decided to adjourn the session. I think that the legacy of this is still being written. It's going to depend on the election results this year, um, how voters respond in terms of the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats in November. Um, there are a couple ballot initiatives in play that public employee unions are putting up. And now I don't know if they would go to the ballot in the end if they get enough signatures right. or they negotiate some other way to address this, but they would penalize lawmakers who walk out. I think that there was recognition from Democrats that they're going to have to address this in some way. I don't think either party has been very excited about reigning in this two-thirds supermajority just because it's something they've both used at various points in time. And you never know when you're going to be in the minority in the future. It's kind of looking at the federal corollary the filibuster and kind of the ramifications of eliminating that right it's sure. a, it's kind of comparable in some respects because you don't know what the unintended consequences yeah it are. foils you but there are times when you can look back and it was kind of a lifesaver for your own party mm-hmm. so um given that this just happened and you know democrats are regrouping seeing what they're going to do um i guess what has the governor done since then and and what are the what are you hearing about a potential special session to address uh the cap-and-trade bill, uh, in theory. So the governor on Tuesday signed an executive order that was implementing about as much as she could do, um, at least for from her office's perspective and legal analysis and that of the Department of Justice, in order to rein in greenhouse gas emissions in the state. They're not able to go to a, a real cap-and-trade system, but they're shooting to achieve the same goals in emissions reductions as cap-and-trade would have done. And a lot of that is is really still up in the air exactly how it's going to look because she is going to direct the executive agencies that report to her 
to start writing those rules. And they've got 10 more employees they're going to be hiring with some money the legislature appropriated on Monday. And uh, basically writing these rules for, among other things, boosting what they call the clean fuel standard or or um, low carbon fuels. And mm-hmm. that is a lot of that at this point uh, deals with subsidizing electric transportation. So it's not necessarily that we're going to magically have uh, gas and diesel <laughs> that doesn't pollute the environment, but uh, they're going to be trying to expand that program and we'll just see how far it makes it in the courts. Uh, the special session, they've been talking about that since the final days of the session. Jeez, it doesn't seem like that was less than a week <laughs> ago in Salem um, when they dropped that news that they were ending the session on on Thursday a few days early. But the House Speaker Tina Kotek and Senate President Peter Courtney are talking about wanting to have a special session. They wouldn't say whether cap and trade or some kind of climate change legislation was off the table for that. But it's hard to imagine how they'd have a special session that would be a success if they brought it up, right? Because we already know Republicans lay down this line that they're going to walk out if that's brought up. And to have a special session, you have to have agreement basically beforehand of exactly what the agenda is. And you probably have counted the votes. Right. So you have to RSVP, essentially. You have to RSVP, (laughs) yeah. And they noted that they'd have to talk to their Republican counterparts in order to line all that up. So I would expect things more along the lines of the budget uh, bills that didn't get done and maybe some high priority policy bills that both parties agree on. Um, and what about, you know, Republicans have asked for this issue, uh, climate change le- legislation to go before voters. I mean, is there any um, signal that you've seen that that might be a possibility? I don't think so. Um, I think that Democrats' unwillingness to refer to voters is in some ways an implicit acknowledgement that that would be a tough election to win. I don't think that the climate activists who've been pushing for this probably wanted it to go to the ballot either. Otherwise, it would have been a simple solution, right, to just agree to Republicans during the session Mm -hmm. and do that. And if we look up north in Washington, a little different politics up there, but a couple um, similar carbon-reducing measures have, have failed at the ballot amid pretty strong spending from what I understand by um, fossil fuels industry. So that look for that is not great. And now that the governor went ahead with executive orders, why would they bring it back? So what else are you tracking or where where do we go from here on all this stuff? Well, in the short term, I'm going to be looking, switching gears now over to election coverage because we have a primary in May, of course, and that's going to be pretty um, determinative, if that's a word of think it is uh, <laughs> <laughs> of um, the politics of the legislature going forward too, because since we have so much democratic control in our legislature, oftentimes the shift can even be as it was in 2018. Do we get more liberal? Do we have more? You know the the um, people who you would at the national level, and then there's some locally who identify this way, um, democratic socialists right. or the progressive wing of the democratic party uh, is the legislature's democratic caucuses shifting that way. So we'll, we'll find out about that some in May. We have several high profile open seats, including in the Portland metro area. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that uh, in May or if not in May before then, but uh, thanks for covering the latest walkout and for all your work on this stuff. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun to talk about. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Keep up with the latest episodes by subscribing anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
If you're cooped up inside for the next few weeks, catch up on past episodes, most of which have nothing to do with coronavirus. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or review. And remember to wash your hands. Until next time.